hello, hello, and welcome back to Moderate Party, a political podcast for moderate centrists and independents. Before we kick off today's episode, I just want to give a quick disclaimer to the parents that listen to this show in the car with their kids and to my grandpa who occasionally tunes in. You guys might want to skip this episode because I'm going to swear a lot. I was driving home from Fresno earlier this month and this truck passed me and it was pulling this trailer with a giant homemade plywood sign. The sign said in glowing twinkly Christmas lights, fuck Joe Biden. And I was pretty struck by that because I was like, holy shit, this guy seriously hates Joe Biden. I mean, he arts and crafts hates Joe Biden. Like, he went to the store, he purchased plywood, he came home, he traced out the words, fuck Joe Biden, drilled little holes in the shape of each letter, weaved Christmas lights through it, and then on top of all of that, in California, gas is $4 plus per gallon. And he hates Joe Biden enough to make his gas mileage worse pulling this garbage sign around. And why? For what? So that everyone, kids, old folks, moms, dads, fellow Let's Go Brandon enthusiasts, everyone knows that he doesn't like Joe Biden. It's just it's so much effort for so little reward. But whatever. I shook it off. I didn't really think much of it. I read the Pew poll that said that 90% of Republicans disapprove of Biden. This guy just confirmed that. No big deal. No breaking news. Flash forward to a conversation that I was having with one of my more liberal friends. Like, imagine a more bearable version of a Bernie bro. And this guy follows news more than almost anybody in my social circle. Like a congressman exhales and he tags me in it on Instagram. So we're talking about, you know, infrastructure and build back better. And he goes, did they pass that yet? And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, I had to stop following it. It was just so much up and down and it was just really bumming me out. Did they get it done? And that really struck me because we're not just talking about roads and bridges. He's talking about what Democrats have dubbed their Build Back Better agenda, aka their social infrastructure bill. That has all of the Democrats' priorities in it, right? Like re education reform, childcare, expanding healthcare, student debt. I mean, you guys have heard me complain that it is, it's a Democratic wish list, right? And one of the more rabid Democrats in my life doesn't even know if it's passed because he stopped paying attention. Okay, so at that point, I'm thinking of the DIY parade float in Fresno, thinking about my liberal friend's apathy, and then I start reflecting on my own views. And don't get me wrong, if you go back a couple episodes, you will hear a bright-eyed and optimistic Hillary talking about how she's excited for the Biden presidency and how he's the guy that can meet the moment. Yet now, one year into his presidency, I find myself frustrated and fresh out of patience for a president that I was genuinely excited to vote for. So now I've got a moderate, a liberal, and a man with a very hateful parade float all saying roughly the same thing. We don't love how this is going. And it's not just my social circle. Pew's latest poll showed that only 41% of adults approve of Biden's performance as president, which makes him the second least popular president in history. You guys can probably guess the first. But when you dig into it, Biden's approval is down in every measurable demographic group. So if you're looking at it by race, by ideology, by age, by education, by economic class, he's down. He's even down amongst Democrats. 
How did Biden go from the president who won the most votes in history to the second least popular president in history? And who's to blame? Is it just that he is president during a difficult time and nobody could have done a good job? Is it his fault? Or is it his party? These are the questions that we're going to be taking a look at on today's episode of Moderate Party. As always, I'm your host, Hillary Lombard. Let's get started. I want to kick this off by talking about candidate Biden. We're going to travel back in time to when Biden was just a young man of 77 and he was running in the Democratic primary. Early in the primary, it didn't really seem like Biden was going to do very well. He wasn't exciting the youths the way that the other candidates were. Bernie Sanders was running on giving everybody free health care. So when Biden said that he would like to have a middle-of-the-road solution, that didn't really, you know, get the blood pumping in Democratic voters. It was the same on climate change. You had one candidate, Governor Inslee, who ran with climate change as his primary policy proposal. You had candidates like Elizabeth Warren, who was talking about sweeping economic reform and change in this country. And, I mean, you had Cory Booker, Kamala Harris. We're running with a lot of libs. And not only that, but a lot of young people, at least in the beginning. By the end, the Democratic primary was between Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden with Elizabeth Warren in third. All of those people are over 70. But I digress. So in the first two primaries, it really does not look like Biden is going to do very well. But then South Carolina happens and Biden's message is tested on a more diverse group of voters. And he crushes it. And a lot of people have attributed that to his ability to connect with black voters. I think that you also need to consider that he connects on economics and he connects with middle-class voters. Like the situation with Democratic voters in Iowa and in New Hampshire, it's just, it's not representative of the majority of the country. So as soon as you put him in a state that looks more like America, he blows them out of the water. Biden positioned himself as a centrist, somebody that could unify the country, somebody that loved America and believed in it, an empathetic father. And he ran on restoring America to what it used to be. His campaign, weirdly, was similar to Trump's in the fact that it focused on restoring America to what it was in a different time. Which is kind of weird if you think about it. Both candidates were essentially running on making America great again, but the way that they wanted to do it was so different. So Biden becomes the nominee and him and Trump go head to head both arguing for their version of a restored America. And Biden wins. He gets more votes than any candidate in U.S. history, and that's incredible. But he does not blow Trump out of the water by any means. It is close, obviously, as we all know, based on the fact that we are still contesting the election, which, for the record, Biden won. Biden, running as a centrist, was able to outrun the party's national brand. People knew him. We've known Biden. He's been in the political sphere since the dawn of time, basically. <laughs> but we know that Joe Biden is not a socialist. He never has been and he's not going to be. And that's why he outperformed his party by 3%. Not just that, but he won back states that Hillary Clinton lost. The Midwest, 
and he won it back by connecting with independent voters, suburban voters, black voters, with messaging like this. That's what the presidency is, the duty to care, to care for all of us, not just those who vote for us, but all of us. I promise you this, I won't traffic in fear and division. I won't fan the flames of hate. I'll seek to heal the racial wounds that have long plagued our country, not use them for political gain. I'll do my job and I will take responsibility. I won't blame others. But now, one year in, we get this. How do you want to be remembered? At consequential moments in history, they present a choice. Do you want to be the side, the side of Dr. King or George Wallace? Do you want to be in the side of John Lewis or Bull Connor? Do you want to be in the side of Abraham Lincoln or Jefferson Davis? This is the moment to decide. At some point, our centrist and mild-mannered President Joe Biden gets it into his head that he can be the next FDR. And there is an arrogance to that. I think that it's important to remember that Joe Biden ran for president three times. He has always wanted to be in this seat. He wants a legacy. And slow, incremental, bipartisan gains, that does not excite, that is not legacy-defining. So it, he gets this idea that he's going to be the next FDR, right? What does FDR pass? The New Deal, which is you know, it's a sweeping investment into American infrastructure, and it transforms the country. He does all of this with an enormous majority in Congress. Biden doesn't have that. He ran, like all candidates do, on a platform so much larger than what they can actually implement. Like, if you look at presidents, they tend to accomplish one or two critical things. Biden ran on the entire Democratic platform, as did every other Democrat, as do every other Republican. They're running, saying that they can do things that they cannot do. Like, if a House candidate in your district is saying that they are going to pass climate change legislation, they're full of shit. They have to win votes. They have to build coalitions. Like, they can say, yes, you're, they're going to work on that. That may be true. But anybody promising you that they can pass something, unless it can be done by executive order, they need to tell you how they're going to pass it. And you know, Biden is not unique in that. Everybody does it. But when all of a sudden you have a majority in all or in both houses of Congress, Everybody all of a sudden expects you to make good on all of those promises. And it's uniquely difficult for Democrats because they are such a, er, a diverse group. Or think about it like this. Taylor Swift, she's worth $500 million. They're both Democrats. Middle-class union workers in the Midwest, they are also Democrats. Teachers, they are Democrats low-income people in the inner cities, Democrats. You have tech elites in Silicon Valley, Democrats. College freshmen passionate about climate change and racial justice, they're also Democrats. So you have this enormous group of people with all of these different wants and needs and expectations for their elector, and Democrats have to hold them together. And that is seriously a disadvantage because Republicans are much more ideologically in sync. What they want, it's a shorter list. Their policy positions, there are less of them. And that makes maintaining unity easier. 
Republicans in Congress also tend to be much more disciplined. They understand that they are going to be running on the national brand of the party. Democrats still don't understand that. Republicans run to win, and Democrats run to try. But we're going to get into that a little bit later. So let's get back to Biden. A huge part of Biden's campaign and also his personal brand is this idea that he is an adult in the room, that he's experienced, that he's calm and cool under pressure. He's not Trump spouting his mouth off, starting trade wars on Twitter, none of that. He knows what he's doing and he can get it done. But when you run on experience and being the adult in the room, you have to be able to put your money where, the, where your mouth is or your credibility is shot. And I think that that's one of the things that's impacted Biden the most. He told us that he can get this done. He told us that he knows how to work with Republicans. He told us that he would restore Americans, American leadership abroad. But most of all, he told us that he was going to get the pandemic under control, that he was going to get us open back up and back to normal and help us rebuild. His entire, his sweeping agenda is called build back better, that we're building back from the pandemic. And honestly, in my opinion, that's not the type of promise that you can make because that is out of your control. You see a theme here? Biden's approval starts to backslide in the summer. It starts with his withdrawal from Afghanistan. He's very adamant that he is going to end endless wars and bring Americans home and stop letting U.S. troops die for a country that won't fight for itself. I'm now the fourth American president to preside over war in Afghanistan. Two Democrats and two Republicans. I will not pass this responsibly on, responsibility on to a fifth president. I will not mislead the American people by claiming that just a little more time in Afghanistan will make all the difference. Nor will I shrink from my share of responsibility for where we are today and how we must move forward from here. I am president of the United States of America, and the buck stops with me. It's harsh words, but I also think that this is one of the moments where Biden has shown true leadership. The speech was great. The withdrawal was terrible. And it was terrible because it was mismanaged, and the American people saw it. Two-thirds of Americans approved of the decision to withdraw from Afghanistan. But 48% thought that Biden mishandled the withdrawal. And it's bad. I mean, the news coverage of the Kabul airport overwhelmed the fact that America was chased out of Afghanistan by the Taliban after 20 years of investment in the region. We had our veterans, some of the most well-respected voices in American political life, coming out and saying that this was wrong, that we were doing this poorly, that we were leaving people to die. That is in direct conflict with the version of America that Biden talked about, the one that stands up for the little guy, the one that I love and talk about on this podcast all the time. The conditions created in Afghanistan were largely created by the Trump administration. The Obama administration and the Bush administration before that, but Biden's the one that chose to withdraw. So how we withdrew is largely on him, a reflection of his leadership and the leadership of his administration. And then we have COVID. Not only does it not go away and we do not return to normal, but in a lot of ways it gets worse. The Delta variant surges in the summer and people are dying. They're getting sick. Case counts are high. Hospitals are overwhelmed. And we're not prepared to manage it. 
But we go we go back into lockdown and we should. We should. Delta was deadly, dangerous, and horrible. And that was the right call, but it was a hard call. And then you have the Omicron variant. That comes out when we think that we're at the end and it slaps us right in the face. Case counts reach record highs. People are dying and we have breakthrough cases. People that got vaccinated that did the right thing, they're getting sick. Everybody's catching COVID, it seems inevitable. And then you have this backlog of testing. People are trying to follow the rules set by the CDC, but how do you do that when you can't get a test? And then the CDC comes out and says that the masks that they've been telling us to wear the whole time, they're not good enough anymore. You can't wear cloth masks. They need to be surgical at minimum, but N95 is what you need. And then we can't get them anywhere. Anecdotally, I can tell you that I was exposed to COVID. I had to adhere to the policy at my job where I had to stay home in isolation for five days and on my fifth day get a PCR test before I could return to work. But there was such a testing shortage. In California, I could not get a test for 10 days because we had started to scale down testing. Places were closed. Even the at-home tests, they were released to our public libraries in the county that I live in, and I went and there were wraparound lines. It was actually causing a traffic incident, so I tried to go to the county testing site, and it looked like Best Buy on Black Friday. There were so many people outside waiting, not social distancing, too close together. How is this our response two years into a pandemic? The Biden administration launched a site where you can get at-home tests sent right to you, and they finally made masks free to the public. They did this on January 19th. Later this month, blue states are lifting their mask mandates. Many states already have, so <laughs> thank you for the masks and the testing as we cross the finish line. It, why did it take this long? He, he came into office knowing that the pandemic was one of the biggest challenges that we have ever faced. Why didn't we have an aggressive and robust response at a federal level? I understand that he cannot, that he can't overrule a governor if they choose to loosen restrictions. But the federal government has the power to increase our testing apparatus and give us masks. That's what we paid for in our enormous government funding bills. All of the COVID relief bills, those should have ramped up testing. So where was it? The guy that promised us that he was going to get us back to normal, he's not doing it. We also have not seen a very concentrated effort to unify the country, turn down the temperature, or work with Republicans. All the news stories have been about negotiating with Joe Manchin and that Joe Manchin's holding up the Biden agenda. Meanwhile, there are 50 Republican senators that they could be trying to make a deal with. And I mean, part of the problem is that the Build Back Better agenda is too big to pass, but if they had broken it up into smaller bills, there are a lot of Republicans that they could try to persuade to support their bill. But that's not what happened. There's all this focus on negotiating with Joe Manchin or Kirsten Cinema, And those are the more conservative members of the Democratic Party. What about the other 50 Republican senators? After it was announced that the Build Back Better bill was dead and that negotiations were stalled, Biden came out swinging for voting rights and abolishing the filibuster to do it. He made a speech in Georgia, and in that speech, he implied that Republicans that don't vote his way on voting rights legislation are racists trying to overthrow our democracy. And that includes people like Mitt Romney that voted, that voted to impeach Trump after the insurrection. He sided with democracy, and it spits in the face of all of the Republicans that voted to certify the election results. It's even worse because Mitt Romney says that the Biden administration has not called or reached out on voting rights legislation because he says 
that there are Republicans that do support coming to a compromise on voting rights. But the Biden administration can't make the phone call, allegedly. Which is frustrating because they managed to reach out to Ice Cube and Billie Eilish. It's not just in Congress, it's Biden's not making a huge effort to reach out to Republican voters. And neither is his party. Here's an example. If you were serious about connecting with Republican voters, right, working in a bipartisan fashion, being the president for all Americans, your administration would be on Fox News. You would. It doesn't matter if you don't like the coverage. That's where Republican voters are. If you're serious about connecting with them, about unifying the country, that's where you're going to be. And I get it. You don't want to go on Tucker Carlson or Sean Hannity. And I don't want you to either. But there's journalism coming out of Fox News. There is. It's not on the opinion shows. It's not Tucker Carlson. It's not Sean Hannity. It's not Laura Ingram. But think about Chris Wallace. Chris Wallace is a good and fair journalist. He's tough. Yeah. But you should be able to stand up to a tough interview. But they're rarely on the show. The press secretary, arguably the most media-friendly member of his administration, made her first appearance on Fox News January 19th, a year in. But they're on MSNBC, a much more liberal network, so often that you'd think they're trying to get a free smoothie on a punch card. All of that being said, Biden has some serious accomplishments for the first year of his presidency. He got $1,400 checks into the hands of Americans quickly. He responded to the pandemic quickly by sending out $1,400 checks and getting a third round of COVID relief spending through Congress. But his approval is still down. Generally speaking, the success of the party often hinges upon the success of the president. But I think that Biden is in a unique situation where the success of his presidency depends on his party. And that's what we're going to get into after this short break. So let's start with the 2020 election. Not Biden, but let's talk about Congress. You might not remember this because of the shit show that follows, but originally pollsters were predicting that Democrats were going to pick up as many as 15 seats in the House and flip numerous Senate seats. But that's not what happened. Democrats are doing a post-mortem. Why did they lose so badly this week? We certainly did not see the blue wave Democrats hoped for. In race after race, district after district, Republicans took home big victories in Texas by even bigger margins than some expected. Clearly uh, a blue wave that never materialized ran into red reality. Tonight, President Biden responding to that urgent wake-up call for Democrats. Republican businessman Glenn Youngkin's stunning win in the Virginia governor's race over Democrat Terry McAuliffe. Not only did they not gain 15 seats, but they actually lost 13. There were 27 House races that experts said were a toss-up, right? So they were going to be close, and they didn't know if it was going to go Republican or Democrat. Democrats lost every single one. Not only that, but Gallup's latest poll on party favorability showed that Democrats actually went from being up by nine points in terms of favorability, meaning that they were basically nine points more popular than Republicans, to Republicans having a five-point advantage. That is a net of 14 points. And if you're like, Hillary, I don't... I don't know what that means. I, I don't really follow this sort of thing. Just think about it like this. It's the largest swing in favorability since Gallup started measuring. It's hard to do a post-mortem on an election like this because Democrats actually lost in so many different ways. Like they lost the culture war. They lost on the economy. 
They lost rural, non-college educated people. They lost suburban voters. They lost everywhere. If you look at the data, they basically failed to earn the vote of any Americans that weren't already living in a blue district. So that's bad, right? And almost instantly, Democrats start pointing fingers. Progressives are saying that Democrats didn't run progressive enough. Moderates are saying that it's the progressives' fault. And the data favors the moderates. Granted, this is a podcast called Moderate Party, so I'm obviously biased in one direction. But if you look at it, the writing's on the wall pretty early. Democratic House candidates could not outrun the Democratic Party's brand. And if you're thinking, what does that mean? Let Congresswoman Abigail Spanberger, a moderate from Virginia, break it down for you. It was a failure. It was not a success. We lost members who shouldn't have lost. And things that people brought to me was defunding the police. And I've heard some colleagues who have said, oh, it's the language of the street. We should respect that. We're in Congress. We are professional. We are supposed to talk about things in the way where we mean what we're talking about. If we don't mean we should defund the police, we shouldn't say that. And we need to not ever use the word socialist or socialism ever again. Because while people think it doesn't matter, it does matter. And we lost good members because of that. And my and I would hope that moving forward, we will not just work to hold the majority, but we will actually work to communicate to the American people that our policies are what is good. The consensus coming out of the Democratic Party ends up being that they just need to pass legislation and then get better at talking about it. That's the only thing they need to fix. And granted, Democrats suck at talking about things that they do well. Consider this. Trump was not a good president. I know that some of you might disagree with me on this, but just hear me out. The U.S.-China trade deficit increased by 40% during his presidency. We have the highest murder rate since 97. We lost 150,000 manufacturing jobs. Federal debt held by the public went up by 50%. We ran up our largest deficit in history. He lied 20,000 times. He cut taxes for corporations and the wealthy and actually added $1.8 trillion to the national debt. And that was before COVID. Not to mention that his presidency ends in a coup and an attack on the Capitol. But you should listen to him tell you about it. I don't believe there has been any administration in the history of this country that has done more in two years, that we're not even up to two years yet, than our administration. I said, just write down some of the things. Each one, each one, point, 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 four and a half pages, almost four million jobs created since the election. More Americans are now employed than ever recorded before. Think of that. Today, more Americans are working than ever before. We've created more than 400,000 manufacturing jobs. Remember when President Obama said you can't have manufacturing jobs anymore? Or maybe just listen to his party talk about him. I have to say that you're living up to every everything I thought you would. Something this big, something this generational, something this profound could not have been done without exquisite presidential leadership. This is one of the great privileges of my life to stand here on the White House lawn with the president of the United States who I love and appreciate so much. People often ask, when did you know? And when did you know tax reform could be achieved in America for the first time in 31 years? And my answer is always the same. November 8th, when President Trump, you were elected president of the United States. 
Well, it was quite a love fest on the White House lawn on Wednesday. The vibe is very, very much. All I do is win, 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 no matter what. Which is terrible because for Democrats, it's more like. Everybody loves a winner. So nobody loved me. Joe Biden wrote every American a check for like roughly $1,400, decreased child poverty by a historic and generation defining amount, and passed historic investment in infrastructure and even got 17 Republican senators on board. But all you're going to hear is. And of course, a lot of people uh, are were really, really looking forward to campaign promises like getting a $2,000 check, not this abbreviated check. The outlook is good for millions of Americans who suffered worse in the context of this crisis. Joe Biden still needs to be pushed to do a lot more. I think the Biden proposal is a serious effort to build the millions of units that we need to address that crisis. I don't think it goes far enough in terms of climate. The recent movement uh, the White House has made on that, uh, uh, you know, for federal employees, that's not uh, enough, correct, from your perspective? Well, of course it's something. The, the point here isn't to undermine the gains that are made, but it's really important for us not to let Incremental concessions cloud the extent to which there's still a really long way to go. The scope of it um, is really encouraging, except <laughs> I think the how. Those of us here, um, especially as progressives within the Democratic Party, we know that there is so much more opportunity here. And in order for us to realize this inspiring vision, we need to go way higher. I don't know if you guys have seen the Debbie Downer skit from SNL. But it feels relevant here. Like, I'm not trying to take shots, but honestly, Debbie Downer was a Democrat. Staffers from the Obama administration have talked about a phrase that President Obama used to say all the time, get caught trying. Basically what he meant by that is that it's better for the American voter to see that Democrats are trying to make your life better even if they don't win. And I love that. I do. I think that we would not have had historic healthcare reform if not for the attitude that they need to get caught trying because Advisors told Obama that he would lose re-election if he kept pushing for this and he pushed for it anyway. Love that. But I feel like Democrats have taken that a little too far because now it's not just that they're getting caught trying, it's that they're only seen losing. And part of that has to do with the fact that the legislation that they're putting forward, I don't know if they were ever serious about getting it passed in the first place. And there's two main reasons for that. Number one, Democrats repeatedly flood the zone. And number two is that they are unwilling to compromise. I think that there's no better example of both of these things than the Build Back Better bill. The Senate reached an agreement on the bipartisan infrastructure deal in July, and they sent it back to the House. It was a huge win, massively bipartisan, as I cannot shut up about, right? And then instead of passing it right away and starting their victory lap across America, progressive Democrats in the House decided to take the bipartisan infrastructure deal hostage. They say that they won't vote for the $1 trillion investment in infrastructure unless the Senate agrees to pass the entire $3.5 trillion Build Back Better bill. And that threat was not even directed at Republicans because at the time, the original plan was to pass the bill in budget reconciliation, which means that they don't have to get any Republican support. Which is also awful because it's like, hey, Republicans, thanks for negotiating good faith on infrastructure. How about we punch you in the face with $4 trillion in social spending? How's that feel? And it's not only that, like they're threatening to tank their party's signature legislative achievement 
unless they get everything that they want, no exceptions. The animal kingdom is rife with more than just interspecies struggles. Many species regularly murder or intentionally kill their own kind. I find this especially frustrating because I think that it's actually indicative of a phenomenon that we see within the Democratic Party routinely. Is it's like, not only are they refusing to try and persuade Republicans, a party that represents the other half of the country, but they are also refusing to compromise or work it out with other people within their own party. That's basically saying that you will not compromise on anything, but you expect everything. Spoiler alert, they do end up having to give up a lot because Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema won't vote for it. It is politically toxic to let this news cycle go on for months talking about how Democrats can't get anything passed. They have a win, literally. It's like if we were playing football and the quarterback, Joe Biden, throws the ball to you and you catch it. You're Nancy Pelosi in this situation and you run all the way to the end zone. And before you cross and get your touchdown, you pitch a tent and camp for months, specifically for five months. That's how long it takes them to actually pass the bipartisan infrastructure deal. By the time it actually passes the house, nobody is paying attention. People have moved on. And not only that, but you can't take the win because everybody in your party is coming out and talking about how, oh, blah. This isn't enough. The infrastructure bill, that's not really what we want. What we really want is social spending. What we really need is social spending. So if you're excited about infrastructure, pack it up, buddy, because we're going back into the ring. We can't even talk about this until we get everything else. And this goes back to how much power progressives are allowed within the Democratic Party. Extremists in both parties have a disproportionate amount of power within their own party because they're loud, they're vocal, and they cannot be negotiated with. This is not good governance. This is not what Obama means with get caught trying. So they end up negotiating the cost of this bill down considerably. It's still massive. The, there's so much in it, and that actually poses a messaging problem within itself because it's like, how is anybody going to remember what this bill actually does when there's about a thousand things in it? Like if Democrats came out and they were like, hey, the Democratic Party stands for five things. We're going to get five things done. That's it. And before you even start with me, those five things cannot be massive, transformative legislation that would fundamentally alter the economic and or political landscape of the United States. I'm talking like like five actionable things. If they only got three done, that's still 60% success. And people would actually remember what Democrats did. Right now, all people are remembering about the Democratic Party is that they lose and that they can't get anything done and that they can't and that Biden does not have control of his party. That's what people are remembering. They're not remembering what these bills actually do. And how could you? Let me just let me read to you what is in the most recent draft of the Build Back Better Act. Right. Like this is what they're pushing for. Free universal preschool, a child tax care credit, a home care expansion, Cuts to childcare cost, consumer rebate taxes, credits to reduce the cost on clean energy. They want to build clean energy technology in America, advance environmental justice and invest 40% to underrepresented communities, coastal restoration, forest management, soil conservation, reduce prescription drug costs, expand the Affordable Care Act, expand Medicare. They want Medicare to cover hearing, dental, affordable housing, expand the EITC, expand, make college affordable, promote nutrition and promote nutrition in kids. Talk about flooding the zone. That's so much different shit. 
That's so many different things. So not only is it difficult for voters to actually remember everything that Democrats are trying to do, but instead of writing a bill, you're creating a poison pill for any Republican that would try to support you or work with you on this. Because think about it. It's like, let's say that we have a Republican that's really passionate about healthcare. There's a lot of seniors in their district and they think that expanding Medicare and, you know, including hearing would seriously help their constituents. So they're willing to play ball on that. But let's say that that senator lives in a state like Wyoming. He can't also vote for all of this climate change legislation that would hurt his constituents. And when you tie all of these different things together, you lose the opportunity to create allies and actually get something passed, which is why I think that Democrats are not serious about passing these bills because they know what Congress looks like. It's not like they woke up one day and all of a sudden they did not have a strong majority. It's been like this for a year. Like they know the landscape, but the bills that they continue to push are enormous and full of so many things that they that a Republican cannot come to their side of the aisle and they're giving them they're giving them no off ramp. Like there's no they're not extending any kind of olive branch or creating any op opportunities for collaboration and then they're like why don't you work with us and pass something? Republicans aren't for anything. And like, do not get me wrong, the Republican Party has a lot of problems right now, as does the Democratic Party. But I do fundamentally believe that in Congress, there are hardworking Democrats and hardworking Republicans that are better than the sum of their party. In both parties, we have good people, good people that I do genuinely believe are in office to make a difference. And I think that they they want to. They want to go back to their district and say, I did this for you. But they can't when anything that they could collaborate on you with comes wrapped in a list of things that would get them voted out of office in their district. Democrats need to get serious. Like, consider climate change, okay? Democrats love to talk about climate change, and it is important. I live in a state that has wildfire season. Imagine living in the pandemic and one of the very few opportunities for entertainment and recreation is going outdoors. And then you cannot do that because not only is it like 106 degrees, but the air is orange. Climate change is real. Climate change is a priority. You have all of these scientists that are saying it over and over and over again. And you're like, yeah, okay, climate's a priority. Yes, yes, yes. Then why don't you have a standalone climate bill? Why do you put climate into these other massive bills as if it's an afterthought or at least not worthy of being the priority? Like if it is truly an extinction level threat, then why are we talking about anything else? It's because they don't really mean that. They don't really take it as seriously as they're saying that they do or they would behave differently. Democracy is no different. Democrats ran saying that we have to fight for democracy that Republicans are trying to overthrow our government, gain power unfairly. When Democrats come out and they're telling us that that's what we need to focus on. If you vote for me, I'm going to office and I'm gonna make sure that the people that would attack our capital will never hold office in this country again. That our country, the one that we all benefit from, is safe and insulated from the people that would seek to overthrow it. That's what you get when you vote for me. Psych, actually what you get when you vote for me is none of that. If democracy was the priority, preserving democracy, preventing a coup, then when you come to office, Democrats, one of the first things that you're going to start working on is that it's going to come up before, I don't know, the end of Biden's first year in office. That's when we start talking about the Electoral Count Act, which, by the way, because I would assume <clears throat> many of you do not know about it because we're not talking about it, electoral count reform potentially could help prevent 
some of the tactics that Trump was planning to use to overthrow the election. It's good. You should look into it. We might do a separate episode about it. But I am so frustrated with this with this point, this hypocrisy in Democrats. Like, if your number one goal is to make sure that people cannot overthrow our government, you're going to start working with Republicans. You're going to show people that bipartisanship still works. That's what you're going to do. You're not going to gerrymander Adam Kinzinger, a congressman that has been a very vocal never-Trumper. You're not going to gerrymander him out of his seat. That's how you lose allies, not how you create them. We do not need more people with the same ideas, which, by the way, are not popular ideas. Like, the American voter has been so clear. They don't like socialism. They don't want to hear about it. They don't want to defund the police. They don't want to abolish ICE. And they don't want to do all of those things on top of a $15 minimum wage, a Green New Deal, forgiving student debt, Medicare for all, and socialism. They could not be more clear. Even in some of America's bluest cities, we're seeing candidates that are endorsing these far-left ideas being rejected. The New York City mayor's race, the winner ended up being the most moderate candidate that was very vocal about not wanting to defund the police. He was a former police officer. And then if you look in San Francisco, just this week, we had three members of the school board actually get recalled after they pushed to rename schools that were honoring figures such as Abraham Lincoln because they thought that they were too, because they thought that they were too controversial or flawed. Abraham Lincoln, they sought to diversify an elite high school by removing the merit-based admissions criteria, which angered a lot of parents. And they were doing all of this instead of reopening schools. Even the Democratic mayor endorsed their recall. If far-left policies cannot win in San Francisco and New York City, how are they supposed to govern the country as a whole? Bernie Sanders lost to Biden by 10 million votes. Biden smoked him. He won 43 out of 50 states. Bernie lost the primary to Clinton. Progressive ideas cannot even win the Democratic Party. So why would you adopt Bernie Sanders' platform and policies as the policies that are going to lead the way in the Democratic Party? He lost the presidential nomination. He lost the primary twice. Like, imagine another situation in which you're going to take the ideas of a two-time loser on how to win. It just does not make sense. And I'm sorry if that's harsh, but what are you doing? If progressive policies cannot even win in the Democratic Party, then how are they the foundation for governance? How? The end result of all of this is that the Democratic Party and Joe Biden are not meeting the moment that we are actually in. It's not. It's tone deaf. 12 major cities hit record violent crime, and the homicide rate went up by 30% last year. So you don't want your party to be the party of defund the police when violent crime is at a high. Inflation is at a 30-year high. People don't want to hear about trillions of additional dollars in government spending. That makes people nervous. When we have record surges for Delta and Omicron, it is ridiculous that we just got masks that are free to the public and at-home tests for free provided by the government. As if it was our first year in the pandemic. It's not. People are concerned about COVID, about violent crime, about the supply chain, about the fact that everything is too expensive, that they can't pay for gas, that they can't afford to buy a house, that they might have to work forever. And Democrats are not passing legislation to help that, or they're not talking about it. They're scattered, they're distracted, and they're ineffective. 
And it sucks because I know that I have spent this entire episode railing against the Democratic Party and it's because I'm frustrated and I'm disappointed. I am truly. I'm disappointed in the Democrats and I'm disappointed in Joe Biden because it looks like the Democratic Party is going to be diving headfirst into an electoral buzzsaw in the midterms. And what's unfortunate is that a lot of the Republicans that are running for office or claiming that they're going to in the midterms, they are extremists. They're militia members. They're peddling in disinformation, misinformation, the big lie, conspiracy theories. They don't care about governing. They care about culture wars and getting on the news. And like, yes, there are Democrats that are is extreme, but it's not the same. The American people are relying on the Democratic Party to get its shit together. And they're relying on Republicans to fight for the rule of law. I really worry about a country that has two sick political parties. Because who does that leave healthy enough to defend us? I'm worried that Biden's popularity and the success of his presidency is heavily dependent upon his party. And how long he'll try to pander to the extreme voices within that party. I think that the success of the Democratic Party is entirely dependent upon their ability to connect with the average voter, to stop listening to well-funded, to stop listening to elite and overly academic ideas about revolutionary change and start focusing in on how do you actually just make somebody's life better? How do you govern for the country, not for your party? Or more importantly, for your district, not your party? Because whenever you're elected into office, you guys know this, but you're elected to represent Republicans, Democrats, Independents, Libertarians, that weird pirate party, all of them. Not only that, but the Democratic Party needs to get real about its priorities because you can't do everything. And that includes telling voters that some of the things they want, they are not going to get. And setting accurate expectations, I actually think will be more politically advantageous for you in the long run than shortcutting your way to votes by promising everything under the sun. And both Biden and the Democrats need to stop trying to govern for the moment they want and govern for the moment they have. The majority is very, very slim. This is not the time that you are going to remake America. We're just fighting to preserve America, honestly, like fighting to keep our democracy and our institutions in place. This is not the time to try to remake it. We just need to make sure that we do make it. And a big part of that, honestly, listeners and fellow moderates, it, it's on us. Extreme voices dominate politics because moderates let them. A study from the organization More in Common estimates that progressives only make up 8% of the electorate. But think about how much of the conversation they take up. Moderates need to get vocal and more active and show their representatives that they need to be represented too. You gotta get out, you gotta get loud. Be a vocal advocate for democracy. And as always, treat people that think differently than you like they are still people. It goes without saying, but yet somehow it also doesn't. So if it needs to be said, here is your friendly reminder to treat people with the benefit of the doubt and assume that when they say something, they mean it sincerely. Whether it offends you or not, it is true for them, most likely. And just engage in good faith. That's it for me today, guys. So if you enjoyed this episode, please like, review, and subscribe to this podcast and tell other people in your life to listen. I'm very happy to be back with you and I'm looking forward to talking to you next week. All right, that's it. Stay safe out there, guys.